At the heart of resilience is the idea that we as humans have the capacity to not only survive and manage in the face of adversity, but actually to grow and to thrive. In our current pandemic situation where we've pivoted who knows how many times, this idea of resilience, of grit, of tenacity, of perseverance, this demonstration of strength in adverse circumstances is extremely desirable. You may have seen advertisements like, we're ready to be part of Alberta's recovery. You know, we're ready and we're back like never before. We're back to serve you better. Or as one advertisement of the UK so eloquently put it, 2020 has made us stronger. In June and July of 2018, eyes looked to Thailand as millions followed the cave rescue mission. For those of you that don't know the story or need a refresher, 12 members of a soccer team from ages 11 to 16 and their coach were stranded inside a cave after a soccer practice on June 23rd. Shortly afterwards, heavy rains partially flooded the clay cave, blocking their way out. They were cut off. And this is a, a summary of the event I found online. Efforts to locate the group were hampered by rising water levels and strong currents. There was no contact made for over a week. The rescue effort expanded into a massive operation and intense worldwide public interest involved international rescue teams. On July 2nd, after advancing through narrow passages and muddy waters, British divers found the group alive on an elevated rock about four kilometers from the entrance to the cave. After days of pumping water from the cave system and finally a respite from the rain, the rescue teams were able to get everyone out before the next monsoon. Between the 8th and 10th of July, all 12 of the boys and their coach were rescued from the cave. The rescued effort involved 10,000 people, including more than 100 divers, scores of rescue workers, representatives from 100 different government agencies, 900 police officers, 2,000 soldiers. It required 10 police helicopters, 7 ambulances, and more than 700 diving cylinders. They pumped more than a billion liters of water out of the caves, and Elon Musk was even developing a one-man portable submarine as a backup plan to bring the boys out one by one. But early on in the endeavor, the question was asked, do these kids and their coach, do they have what it takes to survive until rescue can get to them? One journalist commenting on the scenario said, that's the great paradox of resilience. To overcome adversity, you must rescue yourself first. Your mindset, not the event, defines if you will be rescued or not. In the early days in the cave, it would have been easy to give up. They were isolated and they were cut off. They had no hope. They had no contact with the outside world for more than a week. But the team had the capacity to rise above their situation. And after contact had been made, it was easy to look to the source of hope that they had found. Over this past year, much has been said on the idea of resilience. How do we grow more resilient? How do we be resilient? How do we create uh, resilient teams in our workplaces? How do we raise resilient children? How do we become resilient leaders? How do we learn to be resilient as we pivot yet again and again? And I read an article this week on the idea of cultivating hope as an act of resilience. It compared two different ideas that are often the foundation of resilience, hope and optimism. Optimism is a positive attitude. It's looking to the positive side of things, the, the bright side of life, wanting things to be better. But hope 
in this article, hope was something more concrete. It's not just a, a wish, it's not just looking at the positives, but it's a concrete goal for the future that you can act on. For the boys trapped in the cave, that first week would have been tough. No food, no plan, just alone, waiting for a sign of hope. But after first contact, well, you know people are coming. You have a concrete place that you can put your hope. Right? The, the foundation of a concrete hope allows you to become resilient for the rest of the adversity. Our study today comes out of the book of 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter is a letter written by the Apostle Peter, who was a follower of Jesus and an influential leader in the early church. And he wrote this letter and had it circulated around a number of churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. The book of 1 Peter is written to people who are suffering and under pressure. Christianity had taken off since the days of Jesus, and a combination of Jewish people who had dispersed throughout the Roman Empire and Gentiles or non-Jewish believers uh, were facing pockets of persecution in their towns. Rome was a little bit of a, a melting pot. As the Roman Empire expanded, as they conquered and took over new territories and nations, they just kind of would cherry pick little bits and pieces of the civilizations that they encountered and just add them in to make a super civilization. You know, uh, Greek philosophy, uh, Estrukan art, Jewish legal systems, uh, religion, just a little bit of everybody. Let's mash it all together and see what happens. Christianity, or the way, or simply followers of Jesus, stood in stark contrast to both the Jewish roots that it came out of, but also to the Roman culture in which it was spreading. And though there wasn't necessarily organized nationwide persecution at the time of writing, there was a lot of persecution individually for those that claimed to be followers of Jesus. These people needed encouragement, they needed support, and they needed a reminder of the ultimate hope that they have. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, 1 Peter is a short book in what we call the New Testament, which is written during and after the life of Jesus. It's going to be located towards the back of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can download a great app at bible.com app. Or if you're joining us for church online, uh, there's a Bible on the right-hand side of the screen. You can follow along with us. Picking up in verse 13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. So what are we called to do? With minds that are alert, with minds that are prepared, we are to set our hope on the grace of God. If you have a, a different translation of the Bible, you may have the verse, set your hope fully, or set your hope completely on the grace you have in Jesus. Where does our hope come from? It comes from Jesus. 1 Peter 1.3, Dave read this last week, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Pastor Dave shared about that last week, that we have a living hope that leads us into new life. It reminds us to be joyful in our suffering and to have hope in a future glory when Jesus returns. These are themes we're going to continue to unpack over the rest of our series. But we'll pick up again in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers, here in reverent fear. 
For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Come on. You know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ. That phrase, the, the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Uh, another translation, maybe a little clearer, the futile ways handed down to you. Ever since Adam and Eve first turned their backs on God in the Garden of Eden, ever since they decided that they wanted to be in the driver's seat of their own story, humanity has been under a curse. We've fallen under the curse of sin, a curse of being less than what God has called us to be. And from that initial sin in the garden to the sins that each of us enact every day, we have fallen under the curse of death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Right? Each of us has fallen short of the life that God has for us. And because of our sin, we are cursed to die. Blood needs to be spilled to make us clean. A sacrifice must be made. But Romans 6.23 continues, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? And in verse 18 of our passage, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things that, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of your life, but with that precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. They're saying the same thing, right? You were redeemed, you were ransomed through the blood of Jesus. Right? To, be, to be redeemed is to be loosed, to be set free from legal punishment. Right? This is not just like a, a traffic ticket that has been paid. Peter tells us that it's not with gold, it's not with silver, it's not with money that we've been bought, but with Christ's blood, which is not perishable. If you were a slave, uh, back in the times of when the Bible was being written, you know, you'd have value based on your physical health, your stature, your, your skills and abilities, and somebody could come and they could buy your freedom for a price. They could pay the price to set you free. If you were an indentured servant, somebody could come and pay the debt that you owed to somebody and set you free from that. Those are, those are merely physical releases from slavery. But the price we owe for our sin is death. And not just our death, but the death of a perfect and spotless sacrificial lamb. Something more was needed to pay the moral price that's on each of us. Something more precious, and something more powerful. The best any of us could ever offer is, is gold or silver, right? The results of our labor. But no amount, no amount of money, no amount of good deeds, no legacy, no impact, nothing we could ever do was going to be enough. There was only one sacrifice, only one payment that could pay the price. If you paid attention to the news over the past few weeks, the past few months, you may have heard the term NFT, non-fungible token. NFTs are an interesting piece of technology. It's kind of fascinating to watch. Uh, it uses blockchain, which is the same technology behind cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, to create unique digital assets. Essentially, you can take a, a file, like a video or a photo, 
uh, and you can mint it as a unique product. Better explanations may be comparing it to fine art, right? You could have a photo of the Mona Lisa. You might have a print of the Mona Lisa. Maybe you could even get an artist and commission them to paint you uh, an intricate and detailed copy of the Mona Lisa. But there's only one unique, true Mona Lisa, right? I'm assuming it's owned by a museum, but there's no equivalent. Maybe you could have a, you could have a knockoff, you could have a print, but nothing can be interchanged for the true Mona Lisa. Nothing can replace it. NFTs, non-fungible tokens, kind of bring that same principle into digital art and digital files, right? You can make one unique copy, one unique token that certifies ownership. An NFT can be bought and it can be sold, like a lot of digital products, but they can't be exchanged or interchanged. Each one is unique. The wages of our sin was death, and there's only one unique piece that could be exchanged for our death. Right? The precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus is greater than any temple sacrifice. He was greater than the Passover lamb in Egypt. Christ's blood alone could pay the price for our redemption. We continue in, in verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Our hope is in Jesus, who was chosen by God before all of creation to be sacrificed for us. Through his death and through the spilling of his blood, we are redeemed from the curse of death that we were under. And as Jesus rose from the grave and ultimately ascended into heaven, we now have a living hope that we can look to. Our future is secure. Our future is glorious. Our future is made perfect in Jesus. And that means that no matter my current circumstances, even when the, the situation that I'm in is not something that I want to live in, when they're too much for me to bear, when I can't stop doom scrolling through Twitter on my phone to feel like I have some control over what's happening in my life, when I reach the end of myself and any resilience and self-sufficiency that I have is spent, I can look to Jesus as the concrete source of my hope and the foundation of my resilience. I can look to my hope for today and I can look to that hope each and every day for the rest of my life. But what does it look like to live out the living hope of Jesus? From this passage, we can draw two markers. The first one, growing upward in my character. In Christian circles, we often call this process sanctification. If you're looking for a, a theological term, uh, I like the term becoming like Jesus, maybe a little more casual. Uh, the word Peter uses here is to become holy. Every one of us is, is struggling with something during COVID. Maybe at the start, we got excited about gardening, uh, making sourdough bread, decorating home renovations. But as we've reached the end of our internal hope, as we reach the end of our self-sufficiency, we begin to falter. We begin self-medicating with alcohol or drugs or pornography. We, we slack off in our personal growth we get a, a lack of discipline in our lives because, you know, it's really easy to eat breakfast after my first Zoom meeting and just keep the camera off than it is to, to do it before. 
but we're called to something more. We'll jump back to verse 13 of our passage. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. There's lots of great imagery in this passage. Right? With minds that are alert, we do this. With minds that are prepared for action. Uh, depending on your translation, you may have this, but uh, a more literal translation of that would be to gird up the loins of your mind. In ancient times, they would wear long, flowing robes. Right? They, they draped over you. And so if you anticipated action, if you, had to, if you had to run, if you had to sprint, if you had to do something physically strenuous, you would take your robes and you'd kind of wrap them up and you'd tie them into your belt. Right? That was how you would prepare yourself. You'd gird your loins so you could do that. Uh, a modern-day equivalent, maybe, uh, lacking a little bit of the same punch, but in the same vein might be, oh, you know, it's time to roll up your sleeves, prepare to work, get ready to think on God's works and to obey him. So with a, with a prepared mind and fully sober. Yeah, this refers to physical drunkenness and sobriety, but it also refers to the attitudes that we have, our mental intoxication, distractions, busyness, this verse is calling us to be physically prepared, but also to be mentally and spiritually aware. So we've prepared our minds. We're spiritually and mentally alert. We've set our hope fully on Christ, and now we obey. Verse 14, right? As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Uh, directly, this maybe doesn't translate as obedient children, but it's a phrase where the person is characterized by obedience as if obedience were their parent. Uh, the phrase you may have heard, right? Oh, he's his father's son. Yeah, there's, there's a literal piece to that, you know? We say it because, yeah, that person is your son, but we, we say that phrase often to go, yeah, they're just like their dad. You know, their, their attitudes or their appearance are exactly like that of their father. That's more what this picture is. It's not that obedience is simply a, a characteristic that we're under, but it's that our whole self is defined by that attribute of obedience. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Do not be conformed means that we don't pattern our lives or our actions after our evil desires. It's a reminder that obedience to Christ is radically different than our life in the flesh. Have you ever realized that something's bad for you and you still keep on doing it? I think for me it's this idea of uh, like healthy junk food replacements and when I realized they weren't healthy. You know, at first you, you get something probably from like the organic aisle at Superstore or No Frills or wherever you're going and you're like, oh, it's dried coconut clusters and it's, it's granola and it's berries uh, and dried yogurt and it's like, that sounds delicious, that sounds great, it's going to be healthy for you. Uh, and then you look at the, uh, you know, the nutritional facts and you realize, oh, the whole thing is actually covered in syrup so that it tastes good. And they've added however many other things to it. And now you've realized, oh, it's not healthy. It's not what's good for me. Right? When you, you think it's good for you, when you think it's healthy, when you think it's productive, 
you can keep doing it and you can keep enjoying it and you can keep living in that. But once you're no longer ignorant of that, once you know that something's actually bad for you, then you need to change how you live. You can't live in those ignorant ways. You can't keep eating those same snacks that you think are healthy but aren't, right? Sin, sin is much the same way. Before we come to know God, we can live however we like. We do as we desire. But once we put our hope in Christ, and once we learn that our ways are not God's ways, we need to change. We can no longer conform to the same ideas we had before. Instead, as verse 15 calls us to, but just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. We're called to pattern our holiness after God. For us to be holy is to be separate from sin. We are called to be holy in all of our lives, not just our actions, but to turn our beliefs and our motivations over to God. Uh, the theologian Wayne Grudem comments on this passage. He says, the final reason why some things are right and others wrong and why there are moral absolutes in the universe is that God delights in things that reflect his moral character and thus reflect his excellence. As we come to rest in our ultimate hope in Christ, as we seek to know God more and to become more like Jesus, we bring ourselves into alignment with him. We grow upwards in our character. We come closer to the standard that God has set. Through Christ's sacrifice and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we are able to grow in holiness. Right? To grow upward in our character means that holiness must become a full and pervading aspect of our lives. But this change in our behavior is not only internal. As we purify our lives, we're also called to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Verse 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. Right? We, grow, we grow upwards in our holiness, but we're called to grow outward in our love. When we come into times of adversity, it's easy to focus on ourselves. It's easy to, to isolate for safety or out of pride and, and protecting ourselves. It's easy to, to pull back from relationships. It's easy to avoid another Zoom call or another FaceTime because it's, it's hard to build a relationship that way. But in times of adversity, we can also show love to those that are around us. People need to believe with somebody else. Right? People need encouragement. They need support. They need to know they're cared for. And out of the outpouring of our holiness, and out of our continual obedience to Christ, we are called to demonstrate that love to those that are around us. Right? You could. You could paraphrase the verse something along the lines of, uh, then having purified your souls by your obedience to these true commands of holiness, love one another earnestly. And if you caught it when I read the verse earlier, there's actually two, love appears in the verse twice. But if we look at the original language, it's actually two different words, both translated as love. Right? The, the first one is phileo. Right, in this passage, it's phileo love. A phileo love is like a, a brotherly love. 
Uh, it's often written as a sincere love or brotherly love, right? The result of our obedience should be a sincere, brotherly, friendship-style love to those that are around us. But Peter doesn't call us to stop there, right? We're called to move from this phileo love at the start of the verse and into agape love. Agape love is selfless. It's unconditional. It's sacrificial love. It's the same love that God demonstrates to us. Right? It's love that's more than a feeling. It's love that requires action. And we do that through how we treat others. We do that through how we care for those that are around us, through how we support people, how we encourage them. We do that through the lifestyle of generosity that we live and through our giving. We do that through our inclusive nature as we demonstrate a welcoming spirit to those that are around us. We do that through sharing the gospel message of God's love with others because we want them to experience that same love from God that we experience. Right? We love others even when it costs us, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's inconvenient because our hope calls us to be a people of love. We can continue in... In verse 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Our hope is going to be completed. Our, our hope is an imperishable seed. Our hope is this concrete, unchanging promise from God. And oftentimes, we, we get discouraged. You know, we, we get tired, we get beat up, we're dismayed, and what do we say? We say, oh man, I've, I've lost hope. I've lost hope in whatever my hope was in. And as believers, we don't, we don't lose our hope. We might lose sight of our hope, but Jesus' promise is true and unfailable. So when we feel hopeless, it's not that Jesus has moved or that Jesus has failed us, it's that we may have lost sight of him. We have a certain and unfailable hope. When we are discouraged, we get to put our eyes on Jesus, our concrete hope, a hope for today and a hope for a glorious future where we will be united with God. That's the future glory that we hope for. If you remember back to the start of our time together, I said that resilience is based on hope, and that hope requires a concrete and actionable goal for the future. Right, hope in a specific future. Hope that the goal will come to completion. The boys in the cave, once they had contact with the outside, they had a foundational hope. Not yet complete. They hadn't been rescued yet. But there was a promise that work was being done. Similar way, when my wife Maddie and I came to Ellerslie, we weren't yet engaged. Right? We were just dating. Um, and in fact, it's one of the tensions that affected our relationship through the first summer that we were here. Maddie still to this day will say that she wished that we had been engaged when we came to Ellerslie, or that I took way too long to get there to do it. Um, we still disagree on that, but we're working through it, right? Early that summer, we, uh, we had gone and we watched Incredibles 2, right? Great romantic movie. Um, and then we went to West Edmonton Mall. Uh, I think it was a Saturday, and we, we looked at rings. We had talked about it, we had planned it. So we went and we looked at rings and she picked out the wedding band she wanted. She picked out the engagement band that she wanted. I think she may have even picked out the anniversary band that she wanted, but I made her wait a little bit for that one. 
uh, and they wrote down all the numbers for me and they said, okay, uh, here's what they are, here's what it's gonna cost. And um, I went back the next day, maybe it was two days later, but I, I went back by myself very shortly afterwards and they had sold that ring. It was gone. So what do I do? Well, I pulled out my visa, I put money down and I ordered the rings. I said, these are the ones I want. I wanna marry this woman, I want those rings. And I waited knowing that the rings were coming. I knew the commitment was there. I knew that there was a promise that I was going to fulfill to her. I knew we were gonna get engaged. I knew we were gonna get married. I knew it not only in my heart, but I knew it because my visa bill had already been paid. I could look at my, my visa statement. I could pull it out and say, oh yeah, there's a reminder that we're gonna be married. I have proof. I have it written down somewhere. But Maddie, Maddie didn't have that same experience. Maddie didn't yet have the ring. And so for her, the, the hope, the promise that we would get married, it wasn't yet firm. Right? She didn't have a concrete hope in it yet. Ultimately, the ring came in, we got married, and now we've been married for two years. And it's great. But that engagement ring is a promise. It's a promise of something that is not yet fulfilled, and it's a reminder of a promise to be married and a promise to remain faithful. Right, and an engaged woman can look at the ring on her hand and go, that's a reminder of the commitment and a reminder of the hope I have for a future where I will be married and I will have a husband. In the same way, the Bible gives us a call to a similar reminder of hope. The Bible calls us to come to the communion table as a reminder of what Jesus has done. Right? Communion is a sign given by Jesus as a promise of his commitment to return. A promise of his body and his blood given for us. It's a reminder that though the work is not yet complete, that we may not have that future glory, that he is working it out to completion. It is a promise for the commitment. It is a promise for a future hope. 1 Corinthians 11.26 tells us, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we close our service today, we close in light of the hope we have in Jesus. We close knowing we are called to grow upwards in our character and to grow outwards in our love. And we close with a reminder that our hope comes from Jesus and that we can look to our hope every day or look to that hope every day. So let's take this bread in remembrance of Jesus' body given to us on the cross. In the same way, we can take this cup as a remembrance of the hope we live in because of Jesus' blood paying the price of our sins. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the hope that we have because of your sacrifice. Thank you for your body and your blood given for us. Thank you for the freedom that we live in. And God, as we, we leave our church service, as we, we leave our, our homes for those watching online, 
and we head out from here. Help us to see ways this week in which we can continue to grow upwards in our character, to become more like you, to grow in our holiness, and to see opportunities where we can demonstrate your agape love to those that are around us.